Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church. And if you're a part of Rungi FBC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin today's study, then turn to John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15, for this message is entitled, Heads Up. Have you ever been blindsided? This usually happens to us when someone promises one thing and delivers us something else, but, but blindsiding is usually a term that's reserved for football. It's when a player is facing away and someone hits them from a direction that they're not looking in, and it's usually very hard. Blindsiding is, is where most of the injuries in football come from. You see, when you see someone coming at you, your mind and your body, they're able to take measures to compensate for the impact. When you get hit and you aren't ready for it because you didn't know it was coming, that's usually when the impact does the most damage. And since we're not in the NFL and probably don't play football that often, when we refer to, to being blindsided, it's usually not a, a physical blindsiding, but, but something else. When we're blindsided the most often, it's because we didn't see a financial hit coming or, or maybe some sort of emotional hit coming. Because we know it's not the hits that we take and we're ready for them that do the most damage, we usually try to live with a heightened sense of awareness of what's going on around us. The last thing that we want is to take a devastating hit in some way and be blindsided. Now, I know we talked about getting scammed before, but I just thought it bears mentioning again that scams are possible because scammers hit us when we're not aware. Now, the authors of the book Slights of Mind wrote, magic tricks are not possible because... Humans have a hardwired process of attention and awareness, and, and it's hackable. What these authors are saying is that sometimes when we aren't, uh, what, what we're aware of isn't really what's going on. So if, from when you're little, your mind is training itself on what it sees. And so when, when someone wants to blindside you or to con you, they will work against your mind and, and what it's programmed to see. Satan is a master of deception, and he loves to hit us off guard. In fact, Peter said it best in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he said, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Lions use the element of surprise to their advantage to devour their prey. And so it can be a little disconcerting for us as believers to know that the devil is always looking for a way to attack us and devour us. But he's not going to attack us where we're strong. He's not going to attack us where we're looking. Our sense of awareness is raised. But he's not going to hit you from uh, in front. He's always going to hit you from behind. He's not going to go where you're strong. He's going to go where you're weak. Uh, where and when you don't see it coming. But see, that's what's so beautiful about the Lord. Has anyone ever told you that's none of your business? Well, if anyone could tell us that's none of our business, it's God. As he once told Job, when Job was questioning him as to what he was doing, and, and God says to him, where were you whenever I laid the foundations of the earth? In other words, how is this any of your business to determine what I choose to do with my creation? And although God could take that approach with us, he doesn't. You see, God is in the business of revealing things to us, not for our benefit, uh, but not for his benefit, but for ours. For example, People can talk about when God destroyed the world with a flood, and it was the most atrocious act of genocide ever committed against mankind, which would have been true if God had not told creation what he was going to do in advance. And before you think, well, you know, all they had was a time that Noah was building a boat, think again. God told Enoch 
uh, Noah's great-grandfather that as long as his son Methuselah was alive, he was not going to bring judgment into the world. In other words, people will have the lifetime of Methuselah to repent and turn to God whenever, and whenever Methuselah died, uh, then, then God would bring about judgment. And so Enoch names his son Methuselah, which roughly translated means his death brings forth. And he's talking about his death brings forth judgment. The oldest man who ever lived was Methuselah, who lived 969 years. I pause there to give you a little guess there. 969 years that, that Methuselah was alive. So God gave mankind 969 years to repent, and they refused to. And so as soon as Methuselah died, God brought about a flood and delivered Methuselah's grandson, Noah, and his family. God in the Bible has always given mankind a head up, a heads up about what was going to happen before it happened. From the forbidden fruit in the garden, to the flood, to the exile in Babylon, to the coming of Christ, to the second coming of Christ. In last week's passage, we read about how Jesus told his disciples, I no longer call you slaves, but friends, because a slave has no idea what his master is doing. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I heard from my father, I have made known to you. You see, he told them that he would soon be leaving them, and even as he will suffer many things, so too will they. Well, in today's passage, he's going to speak as to why he's giving them this heads up and even what they can come to expect as his disciples. I want to read John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. This is what Jesus said, I have told you all these things so that you should not be offended, taken unaware, or falter. Uh, excuse me, I'm reading Amplified Bible. Let me, let me switch to New American Standard. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who wants to kill you will think that he is offering a service to God. These things uh, they, they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Because these things I have spoken to you, so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but cannot, you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would just open our hearts to receive your word and that, God, you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will convict us of our sin, that you will show us the path of righteousness, and that you will remind us of our coming judgment, Father, and how if we have our lives surrendered to you, if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we will not face judgment alone, and we will not be condemned. Father, I ask that you just continue to work through us uh, in, in, in this passage and in this message, and that, Father, that you might be glorified in our lives. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Jesus, uh, in this passage, he explains to his disciples why he's alerting to them, alerting them of what will happen to them. He tells them in verse 1, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. See, Jesus knew it would be difficult for them to understand how people could hate them for testifying on his behalf. Usually when you're telling the truth, it's what exonerates you, not what condemns you. But because they would later testify to Jesus' resurrection and ascension, they would be hated by the Jews and persecuted. Jesus told his disciples that he was alerting them what would happen ahead of time so that they didn't begin to question whether or not they were doing God's will or not. You see, in their culture, a person suffered when God was bringing wrath. So for the religious leaders, those who claimed to be the closest to God to be persecuting them, uh, the disciples were going to be painted as heretics who blasphemed. They'd be thrown out of the synagogue, the only place they had to go and worship God. They and everyone around them was going to question whether or not they were doing the will of God or not. In fact, Jesus even continues in verse 2 and tells them, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. These men would think that they're doing God's will by killing the followers of the way. And we see this exact example in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Paul says in Acts 22, 3-5, I am a Jewish man born of Tarsus of Sicilia, uh, Cecilia, excuse me, but brought up in this city and, and at the feet of Gamaliel and educated according to the strict views of our patriarchal law. Listen to what he says. Being zealous for God, just as all of you are today, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole, whole council of elders can testify about me. You see, Paul described himself in his early life as Saul as a man zealous for God. He thought he was doing God a service by persecuting the church, the followers of the way of Christ, as, as all of the other religious leaders did as well. And, and it wasn't until Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus that he saw how blind he truly was. In fact, Jesus confronts him and Saul responds, Who are you, Lord? Meaning, I don't know who you are. Who are you? Jesus tells his disciples in verse 3, These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Now, two things are intriguing about this verse. One, that the most religious leaders on the planet didn't know God and yet had an entire religious system on how to be in good standing with him. And it's also intriguing because God would allow this kind of persecution to happen to those whom he loves and whom love him. So the question is, why didn't God stop it? Why didn't God step in and say, these guys don't know me? Well, in, in the person of Jesus, that's what he did. But why didn't God the Father do some huge, miraculous miracle to show them that they didn't know him? Well, I would say, you know, that's taken, taken uh, care of in the resurrection of Christ, but maybe not in the way that we would want. So that's still a question. Why didn't he do it the way that we think he should have? So keep in mind here that Jesus told his disciples, he hasn't spared his own son what makes you think he's going to spare you? And also, I just want to point out that the deaths of the disciples served as an incredible purpose that strengthens our faith today. No one is going to throw their life away for what they know is a lie, especially not all of them, all of the disciples. You see, you and I have had the testimonies of men and women who gave up their lives for believing that Jesus rose from the dead, men who witnessed it. And without the deaths of Jesus' disciples, we wouldn't have faith today. The fact they gave up their lives as a testimony 
for believing Jesus rose from the dead serves as a powerful indicator that what they said was true. See, God had a purpose for all this. And Jesus tells his disciples, but these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, this verse could serve as an accusation that Jesus wasn't being completely upfront with his disciples. For example, uh, people could say, uh, you know, maybe his disciples could have said to Jesus, wait, if you told me that I was going to be put out of the synagogue, the only place that I can worship God, and that I was going to be hunted down and killed like, like prey, I never would have followed you. Why didn't you tell me this at the beginning? But as Jesus explains to them, I didn't alert you that I would leave you and that you would suffer because I was with you then and it wasn't necessary. I, I share this with you. My dad once had a dream that he believes is a vision from the Lord as to when and how he's going to die. Now, he said several times, but, you know, like, you know, I died picking out bait in, in uh, you know, the Isle of Walmart. So he never goes back there and gets bait from Walmart. But this dream he has constantly reminded us of uh, that, that this is how he's going to die. Um, I was about 15 or so when he had this dream, and in his dream, he's lying in his deathbed, and my oldest niece, Tori, is around 21 years old, so by my dad's dream, he has about six years or so left to live. The problem is, my dad regularly reminds us by saying things like, you know, I've only got about 12 years left to live, son, or, you know, 10 more years, and I'll leave this place. And listen, I love my dad. I don't want him to die. Now, I remember one, one time I was working at Don's Barbecue, and, and, my, and my dad came up to where I was working, and he told me this. Again, you know, I, I'm going to die soon. I just want you to know I'm not going to be here forever, and I'm going to die soon. And, and I remember when he told me this, I was so upset, I began to cry, and I hugged him, and I told him I didn't want him to die, and I didn't want him to go anywhere. Naturally, I was upset. Now, I, however, I can see is, you know, God's worked in me and I have a little bit more sp spiritual maturity now than I did then. I can see that what he did to me wasn't right. Now, I, I'm now of the opinion that, that it was pretty selfish of him to do that to me. Now, listen, I, I still love my dad. I don't want him to die. I'm just not going to live my life mourning my father when he's still alive. No, I'm going to try my best to enjoy a relationship with him while I still can't. And I understand I'm bringing a little baggage into this verse, but what it make, what make, it makes sense to me that, that Jesus wouldn't constantly remind his disciples, well, guys, I got about 26 more months to live because that's just wanting, wanting people to come around you and say that they love you. It wasn't necessary for him to tell them he was leaving them until he was leaving them. And while one might have argued, well, thanks for the heads up, Jesus, keep in mind that's exactly what he's doing right now. In this passage, that's exactly what he's doing. If anyone had reason to be sorrowful, it was Jesus because of what he was about to face. And yet he spends his time consoling his disciples instead of having them console him. Jesus says in verse 5, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where, you're, where you are going. Now, isn't that a little contradictive? Didn't Jesus' disciples, didn't Peter ask him in chapter 13, Where are you going, Lord? What, isn't that exactly what, what they said? What I believe Jesus is saying in this verse isn't that they asked the question where you're going, but the fact that they had no genuine concern for where he was going, but because they were overcome with their grief, just why he was leaving. And Jesus said in verse 6, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. This meant, as Jesus said, their grief was so great, they didn't understand why he was leaving them. And certainly we could understand that, right? 
Now, this might be kind of a silly example, but in the movie Armageddon, Bruce Willis's character is, is, is about to detonate the me- meteor that's about to hit the Earth and, and kill everyone. And, and spoiler alert, he ends up blowing himself up and saving the world. Well, he gets a few moments with his daughter before he detonates the blast. And she knows what he's doing. She knows if, if he doesn't, every single person on Earth will be killed. Yet she still cries out, Daddy, don't leave me. She is so overcome with grief in this movie, and it's just a movie, I know, but it's an example. She's so overcome with grief that the thought of losing her father is unbearable, even though she knows why he has to leave her. He has to do it so that she and everyone else on the planet can be saved. Jesus' disciples weren't focusing on the fact that Jesus needed to return to the right hand of God. They were focused only on their loss, which is what he was telling them. Their, their master, their teacher and friend was going away. And he says, I know, I know you guys are sorrowful. They had not yet fully grasped the importance of Jesus' crucifixion and the implications for the church. That Jesus would be resurrected, what's that, what is that going to mean for all of humanity? They hadn't considered this. Jesus had to go blow up the meteor of sin so that we could all live. And in the next verse, Jesus makes the most astounding statement. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's amazing sometimes how we entertain the idea of how great it must have been for the disciples to see Jesus face to face. What would it have been like if I had been alive during Jesus' earthly ministry? Well, forget the fact that you and I would likely have been among those who had condemned him and put him on the cross, thinking that we were doing a service to God. No, instead understand what Jesus is saying, that the Holy Spirit is so much better than the Son in person. The person of the Holy Spirit is able to be in all places at once and is never separated from us. Not geographically, not spiritually. The Holy Spirit has some functions that Jesus speaks to in just a second, but I just want every single believer listening to understand that God is with you and intimately knows you because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Our situation now is far greater, far better than the disciples when Jesus was walking on earth. I'm sure you've seen the the victory celebrations on TV when, when presidential candidates are elected. They get everyone involved in their campaign together and they anxiously await the results. And as the results come in, the opponent gives his or her concession speech and and all the winning candidate supporters throw their hats up in the air and they party like it's 1969. Which, by the way, I wasn't alive for, but I'm told, hey, it was pretty great. Just imagine if the winning candidate were to say to, to all the people that worked on his campaign, hey, this party is great. This celebration is so much fun, I don't think I'll ever go to Washington. The candidate supporters would say, oh, yes, you will. That's why we elected you. You're going to Washington because you must get to work for us. Jesus was going to a much more important place than Washington for us. He was going to the right hand of God the Father. It was far better for him to go there than to stay in Jerusalem. There, he would be in his full position of power, and his first order of business would be to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Jesus tells him in verses 8 through 11, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, 
concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because i go to the father and you will no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged jesus explains that judgment is coming to every person even to satan and he has been judged every person who lives on this earth will face judgment and it's the holy spirit's job to convict us of our sin and i've heard it said uh, by a comedian that Baptist churches are really good at making you feel terrible about everything you've ever done in your whole life, and they're really good at it. But I just want you to understand that I hate being made to feel guilty. And it is absolutely the last thing that I, in the world that I want to do to you. Believe me, I can make you feel guilty. I was trained in the lion's den of manipulation growing up. That's what we Wallers do best, is make people feel guilty. But understand, I don't want you feeling guilty. I want you feeling under conviction. Because when you're under conviction, that's not me doing it for guilt. Although you know, it is a powerful motivator, it never truly changes a person. And, and being under conviction by the Holy Spirit, that is what causes us to change. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. God gives, uh, gives God's people righteousness and trains us to walk in his ways. And it reminds us of the coming judgment. It is because of the work of Christ that Satan was condemned. He wanted to overcome Jesus and destroy him on a cross. And Jesus resurrected from the dead. Satan was done. Jesus knew his disciples were so distraught after his leaving. This is what he says. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They couldn't hear the things that Jesus needed to say to them because of their grief. And so he says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. You see, in this text, we see something that that confirms, uh, you know, even reinforces what John said in in John 1.3. He says, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Everything was made for him. And the Holy Spirit takes from what belongs to Jesus all truth, all power, all knowledge, and he communicates these things, and he shows him, shows even through his disciples, these things, the truth, the power, the knowledge. Now, it's an incredible thing to have the Holy Spirit speak to us, and most of the time he speaks to us through God's word. Martin Luther, he played a critical role in uh, the restoration of the church. Um, in, in 1500s, there was a reformation. We're going to reform um, the church. We don't, wanna, we don't want to change the church. We don't want the church to, to be reinvented. We wanted to reform it. And so Martin Luther, he, 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 he helped to revitalize the church during the reformation. And even though he witnessed some incredible things through God, God worked through him in awesome ways. Through the church. I mean, the church was just... just right back where it needed to be. When Martin Luther was about to pass away, he had concern that people would abandon the gospel and instead trust in superstition. This is what he says in 19 or sorry, excuse me, 1546 in February, he writes these words. In times past, we would have run to the ends of the world if we had known of a place where we could have heard God speak. But now that we hear this every day in sermons, we do not see this happening. 
you hear at home in your house. Father and mother and children sing and speak it. The preacher speaks it in the parish church. You ought to lift up your hands and rejoice when we have been given the honor of hearing God speak to us through his word. Oh, the people say, what is that? After all, there is preaching every day, often many times every day, so that we will soon grow weary of it. What do we get out of it? All right, go ahead, dear brother. If you don't want God to speak to you every day at home in your house and the parish of your church, then be clever and look for it in something else. In Trier is the Lord's, uh, Lord God's coat. In Achan are Joseph's britches and Our Lady's chemists. So they, go there and squander your money. Buy indulgences so the Pope and the Pope's secondhand junk. Now what he's talking about in this letter is about how people would go on lengthy pilgrimages to see holy relics. From Jesus' coat to Joseph's pants to the vial of milk from the, uh, the breast of Mary. I'm going to tell you, there is money to be made in superstition. People were so duped into thinking, well, this is the skull of Simon Peter. They would go and pray before it because they thought, if I pray holding this relic or touching this relic or looking upon this relic, that my prayers will have more weight. And so he's telling them this. You're going to go and you're going to pay a fortune to buy some secondhand junk? You don't need that. You have God speaking to you through his word. Read your Bibles. I've, I've put my life at risk to make sure that you get it. You know, there is, there is, this isn't something that we are past, I'm telling you. Just up the road towards Sheridan is a supposed apparition site for the Mother Mary. Now, I haven't stopped, and I won't in the future, but I can tell you there's likely a shop where you can buy little trinkets to strengthen your prayers. People pay stupid money for things like this. In fact, Martin Luther's own benefactor, Frederick the Wise, had nearly 18,000 of these dubious little objects. Why? The answer is simple. The people that buy these things, they suffer from impotency in their spiritual lives. And they're so superstitious that they think that a hair from Jesus' camel is any substitute for the demonstrated power of the Holy Spirit. It's so sad. It's funny, isn't it? That people would look for power not in the possession of the Holy Spirit who is alive, but instead in the bones and possessions of the dead. We need power in our lives. And we have constantly heard the testimony of former drug addicts, of which I was one who said, I always had a desire to quit drugs. I just didn't have the power. Not until I met Jesus. True power. The power that will change your life is the power of God, the Holy Spirit. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that I am able to stand before you and to speak to you and to give you a message to lead you in the path of righteousness. Preaching has no power unless the Holy Spirit takes God's word and penetrates our hearts with it. So if you're looking for a heads up in life, power to overcome Satan's attacks, or the ability to remain firm in what seems like you're being blindsided from every other direction, look not to me or to the church, but to the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong. I often think that I have all the answers as to how you're screwing up your life. For I often think that I'm the smartest person in the room. You know, there are many things that I want to say, but I'm instead going to take my cues from Jesus and simply say this. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. Hey, thanks again for listening. 
We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.